Oh, good morning. Uh, it's so good to be together this morning. Um, you know, as funny as it is to watch these dads who can't answer the most basic questions about their kids, uh, to be fair, I watched a number of videos last week where kids couldn't answer simple questions about their dad either. Uh, things like, where does he work? What does he do? How old is he? How tall is he? No idea. Um, but in almost every video that I watched, kids were able to say things about their dad, like, he makes me laugh, he plays games with me, he makes me feel cared for, he makes me feel safe. Um, and isn't that what we're really celebrating on Father's Day, you know, assuming that today was Father's Day? Um, you know, as much as we like to riff on dads for watching too much TV or playing too much golf or not knowing basic information about their children, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have a good and present father, he paves the way early on for us to feel safe and loved and protected. A sense of security and certainty is something that we long for at every age and stage of life. You know, we want to know that we've made the right decisions, trusted in the right people, believed the right things. But as we talked about two weeks ago, the world we currently live in doesn't have much to offer us in the way of certainty. Futurist Bob Johansson refers to our society as VUCA. It is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. He explains, for the first time in our history, Americans are no longer sure that we can count on the institutions of nation, religion, and society that once upheld our culture, that bound our society together. At the last gathering, we focused on truth and how, as a society, um, we no longer really agree on what is true. And so what I'd like to look at this morning is how living in a VUCA world affects our relationship with certainty or how we hold our convictions. And maybe even how much a VUCA world hyperinflates our need for certainty in every area of life. You know, ironically, while religion generally falls right in line with the modern temptation to be more and more certain about what we know and believe, the Bible and Jesus are inviting us into a way of life that looks very different from that and actually empowers us to live with purpose and at peace in a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. To see the beauty and grace of Jesus' way forward um, we're going to take a deep look into why certainty has such a strong allure and is so hard for us to resist, while at the same time looking at how certainty can be really detrimental to the life of faith. And so I'd like for us to consider three ways that living in a VUCA world overstimulates our need for certainty. And the first is this. The first reason why certainty can be so enticing to us is because we are wired to desire it. It's literally in our DNA. The feeling of certainty is the reason we're able to make decisions and actually live our daily lives. Um, natural selection most likely acted on our species a long time ago to help us form impressions based on limited information in order to promote survival in the face of a dangerous, unpredictable world. And so our urge for resolution is vital for both managing in a complex environment and for learning by helping us to act and to build knowledge. 
Um, and some people just have a much higher level of the need for certainty because they inherited a different form of a specific gene. Um, so what I'm saying, or I guess really what the science is now saying is, for all of the control freaks out there, it is not your fault. It's genetic. Um, so from here on out, I think we should refer to you as control enthusiasts. Um, so we all have a gene called SLC6A4 that we can just think of as the certainty gene. Um, this gene codes for making chemicals that help to regulate our mood and emotions. Now, some people have a different version of this gene that causes it to not regulate their emotions quite as effectively as others. So while we all have a need for the feeling of certainty, people with the alternative version of the certainty gene tend to stand by their convictions much more strongly than others. So if you know someone who is incredibly hard-headed, stubborn, and a control enthusiast, be merciful. I mean, their eye color and height are genetic, and to a large extent, so is their need for certainty. Uh, the second reason that certainty can be so hard for us to resist is psychological. So some psychologists say that we are living through an epidemic of certainty. Now, we think certainty is an intellectual state, but here's the thing, and this is so critical to realize. Certainty is actually an emotional state. According to neurologist Robert Burton, despite how certainty feels, it is neither a conscious choice nor even a thought process. Certainty and similar states of knowing what we know arise out of involuntary brain mechanisms that, like love or anger, function independently of reason. The feelings of knowing, correctness, conviction, and certainty aren't deliberate conclusions and conscious choices. They are mental sensations that happen to us. So to create a feeling of certainty, the brain actually has to filter out more information than it processes, which means the more certain we feel, the more likely we are to oversimplify things or just be plain wrong. And the feeling of certainty also tends to make us more susceptible to confirmation bias. The more certain we feel, the more vulnerable we are to only noticing the evidence that supports our beliefs, and the more likely we are to ignore contradictory evidence. I had two students in my honors biology class this past year who did their science fair project on confirmation bias. And so they picked a controversial topic that people tend to have pretty strong views about. Um, they asked participants to rank like where they stood on this issue. Um, and then they gave them evidence, both supporting and opposing their side of the issue. And their results overwhelmingly showed that people will not only stick to their original opinion, but they tend to become more certain in that opinion, no matter what conflicting evidence they're presented with. Now, the kids that designed and ran this experiment are two high school freshmen who were able to get the exact same results as psychology PhDs and MDs who have run similar experiments with thousands of test subjects. I mean, even though these are two really smart kids, like, how is that even possible? And I think it has something to do with the fact that we form such incredibly strong emotional attachments to our beliefs. They allow us, almost force us, 
to ignore contrary evidence without giving it a second thought. Because, and this is the key, our certainty was never about thought in the first place. Certainty is an emotion. And this emotional attachment to our beliefs has led to the painful polarization of our country in recent years. According to author Jamie Holmes, among the more immediate impacts, 9-11 left Americans with less room for unrelated doubts. In a climate where indecision is chronically unpleasant, opinions on both sides of controversial issues can become amplified as people flee the uncertain ground in between. When the world is less predictable, in other words, when it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, people are more likely to jump to conclusions or entrench their existing views. That's the problem with striving for certainty or making rashly informed judgments of trust to escape from ambiguity. Urgently fixating on certainty is our defense mechanism against the unknown and unstable. The third reason that certainty is so alluring to us and has such a tight, tight grip on us is sociological. So estimates are that 90% of the world's data has been created in the last five years. I mean, the truth is we are drowning in information. Now that should make us the most well-informed, sure-thinking, correct people to have ever lived. But the problem is we're also drowning in cynicism. So I just finished my 19th year of teaching at Lakeshore High School, um, and a lot of things have changed since I started. Uh, when I began teaching, uh, the teacher was the source of information, and it was my job to pass that information along in an engaging and meaningful way. Um, that's obviously not true anymore. I mean, kids now have unlimited access to all of the information they could ever want, um, which I think is a good thing. But the other big change that I've noticed is that kids have become much more cynical. Um, the students who are currently taking my class are a part of Gen Z, which has been named the most cynical generation to have ever lived. So it's not uncommon in my class nowadays for students to ask me things like, how do you know that? Or where did you get that from? And I don't teach a subjective topic like philosophy or social studies. I mean, I teach science, where we are talking about like well-substantiated evidence that these kids are just like, ah, I don't buy it. Uh, and it's not just kids who are becoming more cynical. You know, research shows that prior to the pandemic, there was already a growing distrust in both politicians and medical scientists that potentially made the pandemic much worse than it otherwise could have been. Now, wouldn't it make sense that as our society becomes more and more cynical, we would also become more and more uncertain? But that's not actually what we see going on. As cynicism has grown, so have people's convictions about their views being absolutely 100% correct. We are not only becoming more cynical, but also more certain. Now, let me take a minute to clarify. Um, when talking about cynicism, we're not talking about not knowing, and we're also not talking about skepticism or doubt. Uncertainty goes hand in hand with skepticism. When we doubt, we don't know, and we're very open to saying so. So being skeptical is just reserving judgment until we have more evidence. 
it's a very open-minded approach to the world. And a healthy dose of skepticism is vital to science, wisdom, and the life of faith. But the VUCA world has corrupted skepticism into cynicism. Cynicism claims the evidence doesn't matter. It's a closed-minded view that says, we already know all there is to know, and there's nothing you can tell us that we don't already know. So when we combine cynicism with certainty, feeling right, which is what certainty is really about, feeling right, will always be being right, because cynical people usually won't work through the very uncomfortable possibility that we may be wrong. And cynical certainty is impossible for the life of faith. So here's the thing. If, if we continue to give into this temptation to lunge for the emotional warm blanket of certainty with less and less ability to navigate the tension that comes from not knowing, the life that Jesus is inviting us into will always seem out of reach for us because we'll be looking for something from God that he isn't really offering. Certainty can't bring us the good life Jesus promised. His way is another way. and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way now they only block the sun they rain and snow
Modern life is presenting us with a choice between living helplessly in a VUCA world that feels very much out of our control or giving in to our biological, emotional, and cynical desires to build up walls of conviction. But neither of those choices work with the life of faith until we're able to admit that we really don't know life at all we are going to resist the abundant life Jesus is offering us because life, not to mention the life of faith, doesn't work in certainties. I have a friend um, who was raised in a very conservative Christian tradition, and like most conservative religions, this particular denomination claims to have a bunch of answers, as in we're the ones who have it all, know it all, and know all there is to know, and everyone else is wrong. And my friend has told me that his tradition believes they are 100% certain about things like what happens when you die, how you get to heaven, the end times, and exactly what you need to believe to experience the kingdom of God. I mean, you name it, and they have an answer for it. And my friend can tell you all of those answers. But as he's gotten older and realized that life doesn't work in certainties, he's become more and more disillusioned by a religion that claims it does. And I don't think he's alone in that. There's a reason why young people today are fleeing from the church, and I wonder if it has something to do with this. In the 1950s, social psychologist Leon Festinger designed a brilliant experiment which showed the more committed we are to a belief, the harder it is to relinquish even in the face of overwhelming contradictory evidence. Instead of acknowledging an error in judgment and abandoning our opinion, we tend to develop a new attitude or belief that will justify retaining it. It seems to me this is exactly what has happened with religion. You know, before the postmodern VUCA era, faith was heavily knowledge-based. 
And so there was a preoccupation with correct thinking. But that is no longer the world we live in. And instead of giving people a feeling of security and certainty, it's driving them away. You know, certainty about what we believe it may have been easy at some point in our lives. You know, the truth was encapsulated, put in bullet points, and certainty distributed like candy at Halloween. But then real life has a way of raising all kinds of questions. And a faith that promises to provide firm answers for every issue and relieve all doubt in every circumstance is a faith that won't hold up to the challenges of real life now or as it's depicted in the Bible. So in one of the most influential critical works of the 20th century, William Empson showed that much of the power in the poetry of Shakespeare, Dunn, Chaucer, Tennyson, Yeats, and Milton comes from mystifying or parallel meanings. I would argue that the same is true of the Bible. The Bible does not promote certainty. It advocates for the life of faith, a life of mystifying and often parallel meanings. It's not a rule book to be followed. It's an introduction to a story and the invitation into that story of a life based on faith, a growing trust in the goodness of God. In the Bible, we see so many examples of people who are uncertain, who doubt, but, and this is really the key, people who are still included and celebrated. John the Baptist once wondered if Jesus was the one scripture promised to come. And yet at one point, Jesus said of this man who openly questioned who he was, no one who has ever been born to a woman is greater than John the Baptist. I'm afraid way too often, too many of us feel like the life of faith is just one more area we have to be certain about to participate in. And that just isn't so. The Bible itself raises more questions than it answers. I mean, read Ecclesiastes, Job, or the Psalms. These are not books written to help us dissect faith and walk away certain. And the reason for this is because God is not a God of certainty. He's a God of mystery. Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rayner says, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not be at all. No matter how much certainty we may feel the Bible gives us about God, he remains shrouded in mystery, not totally accessible or explainable. I mean, it's a lot like kids trying to talk about their dad. How old is he? How tall is he? How does he work? I mean, there can be so many things when it comes to God that we just have no idea. The challenges of our day-to-day -day lives, of living in a cynical VUCA world, are reminders that the life of faith has to be centered somewhere other than certainty. And our peace found somewhere besides the feeling of certainty about what we think we know. In the Bible, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And we often rephrase this statement as having faith like a child. But having a childlike faith does not mean accepting everything as told and being completely certain. Because if you look at kids, they're exactly the opposite. They question everything. I mean, they aren't cynical, but they are skeptical. According to C.S. Lewis, 
Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. On the contrary, he told us to be not only as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have. Now, in all its stark raving honesty about life and real people, the Bible and Jesus celebrate a faith in God that doesn't depend on whether or not we're certain of what we believe. I mean, in fact, the words belief and faith in the Bible are not synonymous with certainty. They're just different ways of saying trust. In other words, faith is not so much defined by what we're certain about, but in whom we trust. One author says it like this. We see faith throughout the New Testament, and it's typically not about the content of what to think. It's about trusting God and acting on it. Faith is a who word, a trust word. We just need to be alert to what's happening when we see believe or faith in the New Testament. These are about all-in trust, not something we believe about God or Jesus. And it's not so much something we have, like the thoughts we have in our heads or the feelings we have in our hearts. Faith describes our whole way of looking at life and how we act on that. In 1975, the Jesuits philosopher John Cavanaugh went to work with Mother Teresa. And he was struggling spiritually at the time, and on his first morning in India, Mother Teresa asked him what she could do for him. And so Kavanaugh answered that he wanted her to pray for him. And so she asked, what do you want me to pray for? Now, the entire reason that he had gone to India was to sort out his spiritual uncertainties. And so he told Mother Teresa that he wanted her to pray that he would have clarity. And surprisingly, Mother Teresa said, no, I won't do that. She said, clarity is the last idol, and you need to let go of it. Kavanaugh responded by saying, but you always seem to have clarity. And Mother Teresa laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Mother Teresa is a hero of the faith, and she didn't have clarity or certainty about what she believed. Take that in for a second. What could that mean for us? The Bible in the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So what did faith look like in his life? It certainly wasn't certainty. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is literally sweating drops of blood because he knows he's about to be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and murdered. And he asks God, if it's possible, don't make me suffer. According to the Bible, that is what perfect faith looks like. It isn't about certainty. It's about trust. In the midst of uncertainty, Jesus says, Father, if there is no other way and I must suffer, I will still do what you want. And he goes forward in uncertain, perfect faith. You know, being preoccupied with making sure we have all our thoughts about God properly arranged and defended isn't the kind of faith Jesus lived by or that the Bible celebrates. This preoccupation with certainty is often presented as faith, but it's really just giving in to our genetic makeup, our psychological coping mechanisms, and kowtowing to a modern world where we are presented with this false choice between helplessness 
and certainty. And for far too long, the church has bought into it. But when we look at the life of Jesus, faith isn't about certainty at all, and the life of faith isn't either. It's about trusting in God's grace day in and day out in such a way that it leads us, inspires us, and empowers us to love.
Good job. Olivia actually wrote that song for us this morning. It was so awesome. <laughs> and <laughs> I just love that line. All I wanted was you, and there's nothing else you can or have to do. The Bible says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And a life lived that way doesn't come from what we know. It grows out of who we trust. The Bible also says, face it all head on with complete transparency and unflinching honesty without making excuses for yourself or God and trust God anyway. And isn't this what makes dads so great? I mean, we may not know everything there is to know about them. In fact, there's probably a lot about our dad that is a mystery to us. But we do know that we can trust them and that they are always all about keeping us safe, provided for, and loved. And the life that grows out of that kind of faith is one that can flourish, even in the face of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and the chance to be together. Um, we ask that you would help us to trust you. Help us to face the uncertainties of life head on by having faith in your goodness and trusting that you are good for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. See you next week.